Hello and welcome to Bat Flips and Nerds, the baseball podcast with a British twist. I am your host this week, John McGee. And my guest today is a man who has developed something of a soft spot for baseball and baseball fans in the UK over the last few months, but who spends his days with his hand firmly on the hot stove, burning to a crisp. <laughs> Welcome to Batflips and Nerds, NBC Sports, lead baseball writer, Craig Calcaterra. Craig, how are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. No problem. It's it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for, for giving up uh, some of your day when you could be keeping your hand on that hot, hot stove uh, <laughs> and uh, taking time to speak to, to me and, and to speak to our listeners. Uh, I know that you've had uh, an interesting 24 hours, certainly from your, your tweeting patterns. You've, you've not had a great deal of sleep. So I hope we're going to get some of your more florid stories during the course of the next 45 minutes, an hour or so. You have found me in the sweet spot because I, for whatever reason, I woke up at uh, you know three thirty in the morning uh, U.S. time. Uh, for I have cats and my brain doesn't stop sometimes, so I just woke up and I was really dragging. But now the adrenaline's kicked in, some coffee has kicked in. I'm likely to say things I probably shouldn't say, so this will be great podcasting. Excellent stuff. I, I kind of feel like I'm in a similar place. I. Uh... I've uh, not been long back from work and I've had a very, very frantic day. So I think I'm going to be similarly out there. Uh, so this could this could make for uh, a viral sensation. Uh, we shouldn't probably bill ourselves too high, but let's see how we can go. Or so, it'll get us both fired. It's okay. Well, yeah. Goodness me. Uh, <laughs> no one send this to the mayor of the Liverpool City region. Absolutely do not do that, anybody. Uh, I'm not even going to help you by telling you who that is. You'll have to Google it yourself. So want to start, Craig, by getting a bit into your into your background, because you've got a uh, something of an unconventional path to your current career and also, I think, your current ethos, which uh, comes across very strongly, certainly on in your social media presence and in your baseball writing. So we'll start from the career side of things. Now, I didn't I didn't realize until very recently that you were actually a lawyer, which is something that I just said to you before we uh, started the conversation. I, I was too. So how did you transition from being a lawyer uh, to being a, a baseball writer? And, and, and what was the motivation behind that? Uh, burnout for the most part. Um, okay. I, I mean, I will start by saying, you know, I've been a baseball fan since I was a very little boy. Uh, it has always been a passion of mine. It never stopped being a passion of mine. Um, uh, I never thought it would be a career. I never thought uh, being in the media would be a career. Uh, but it was always there as my number one hobby, my number one non-work, non-family pursuit. Um, and I, I dabbled a little bit. I got involved with the online baseball community, the, the, the very sabermetric-oriented online baseball community here, probably in the late 90s. Uh, baseball Prospectus, Baseball Think Factory, which at the time was called the uh, Baseball Primer, um, just a lot of those sort of early websites of where, where stat heads were hanging out and where a lot of people who now work in front offices cut their teeth doing statistics stuff. I don't do statistics stuff at all, but I was a fellow traveler. Um, and I dabbled a little bit with some hobby baseball writing for a web magazine that went away and just in my spare time kind of thing. Uh, I buckled down. I got away from that. and I buckled down in the early 2000s. I, I had two children. Uh, I tried to get serious about my legal career, but by around 2007 or so, I was getting very burnt out. I had been a lawyer by that time, nine years. In the end, I, I practiced law for 11 years, but uh, as an outlet from from the sort of work I did, which I, I here we call ourselves litigators or trial lawyers. I guess it would, what you guys would call barristers. I was going to court every day, mm -hmm. um, fighting with people over money that wasn't mine and nasty people and just 
having that kind of thing happen and it's just not good for the soul. Uh, so as an outlet, I decided to start blogging about baseball and I just started a blog spot blog and I called it Shysterball at the time, uh, <laughs> which I, I wanted to use a pseudonym because I didn't want my bosses to find out I was writing about baseball, even if it was for no money. Uh, I dropped the pseudonym after a year. After two years, the thing got fairly popular. One thing led to another. NBC Sports started uh, a new sort of website where they wanted to have more of a blogger type voice there, asked me to join as one of the contributors. And after about three or four months of doing that in 2009, I was very drunk one night and I sent a letter to the head of sports at NBC and I said, here's what you really should do with your blog if you want to make it good. <laughs> and uh, I didn't hear anything for three days. And I assumed I was going to be fired from my little part-time writing job. And he actually then responded back saying, what would it take to get you to stop practicing law and do this full-time? And uh, by November of 2009, I was doing it full-time for NBC and I've not looked back. Excellent. So uh, that, that tells a story about the, the value of being, being bold and, and getting drunk, I guess. It's never served me wrong. <laughs> it's interesting to hear what you were saying about being a lawyer because uh, that echoes my I didn't do it for anywhere near as long as you but it echoes my own and I was uh, I was a I was a solicitor rather than a litigator it echoes my own views I I couldn't really understand what I was doing spending all of my time arguing over other people's money exactly yeah. the same thing it's really strange <laughs> yeah it was really strange I, I I have a personal blog it's craigcalcaterra.com and there's a section on there in the about craig section that uh, it's, I can't remember what I even call it, but it says, you know, I, I wrote 7,000 words about that journey and all of my complaints and all of my uh, frustrations with the practice of law and how I got into writing about baseball are there in far more brutal detail than need to be there. <laughs> but the, the short version is it wasn't for me anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, we will we'll park that there. And um, <laughs> but I touched on it earlier in, in, in the lead up to this conversation, you also, have gone on on something of a, a personal political journey as well. Uh, again, this is something that you're 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 quite open about. You mentioned very regularly on social media, and you blog about it. You, you were in uh, in in college. I think I would uh, describe you as something of a, a sort of libertarian firebrand. Uh, and you, you <laughs> somewhere in there. I, I don't know about libertarian, but I I was probably a little more middle of the road um, when I was younger mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, I've always leaned to the left a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. certainly more so than a lot of the people in my in my world. Uh, but uh, I, I have moved far, far more to the left in the last several years, not just because of Donald Trump and all of that, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was happening before that, too, as a sort of reaction to uh, what I was doing for a living and everything. But uh, I, I have always been uh, very, I, I won't say politically active because I don't run for office. I haven't done a lot of political work out in, in the world, but uh, I've been very politically oriented and I've written a lot about politics in my time. I do a lot of it on my personal blog now. And uh, uh, whereas most people who are sports writers uh, will steer away from that because they mm-hmm. don't want to alienate readers or uh, get controversy in an area of the media that is uh, normally considered uh, non-controversial in the United States, at least. You're not supposed to be injecting politics into anything or, or referencing the outside world from sports for the most part. I don't agree with that at all, and I've been very upfront with my views about things, and I like to talk about how politics and the social world interact with sports and how sports reflects the the political world, which it does in, in many, many ways. Um, and luckily, the, the people who write my paychecks at NBC uh, have let me do that so far. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to offer an opinion when I can. <laughs> 
Absolutely, you, you certainly are. And and you know, I would I would say from our side of things, it's very similar here in the UK. Like the notion that sports and politics don't mix is 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 kind of something that's in the national conscience. When in in, in all honesty, they they absolutely do. Um, particularly at the the social end of politics, if you will. I mean, I work in a city where um, uh, left leftist politics are incredibly prominent, and so are two huge internationally renowned football clubs, and the two certainly mesh very closely. Certainly, where I work and where uh, where I live too in Manchester, um, so it's really interesting uh, to see that you've got similar a similar sort of um, tautology in in the it's, state too. It, it's it's strange too because it, you know where I live. I live in Ohio which mm-hmm. is the Midwest of the United States. Um, the city I live in is uh, pretty liberal in, in a lot of ways, but Ohio and the Midwest at large and much of middle America is is pretty conservative. And um, when I was in Manchester back in May, what, what is the museum? The People's History Museum? Is that? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I went there and I was marveling not just at what I saw in there, but that it even existed because yeah. You would never see a museum like that in the United States anywhere mm-hmm. that is devoted to the working class and uh, to leftist movements. It, it, it would be considered uh, horrifying and anti-American to have a museum like that in the United States. Uh, and the fact that it even existed there, I was walking around and saying, like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a very bit of a different world. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is and it isn't, actually. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to that, how, how sports people present themselves in terms of politics. I would say that our sports people in the UK are, are rather more reticent to commit to anything publicly. Um mm-hmm. Uh, in either direction certainly there's a trend that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment in, in the states uh, and i want to get your thoughts on that but before we do we've already dug into the the sticking to sports question and you've said outright already that you, you absolutely don't right. I, I wanted to ask what, why you do that i mean is it because you feel that good authentic baseball coverage requires you to show some personality and be honest with your readers about what you think or or, or do you feel like you're you're teaching them a lesson in a way uh, no, I don't think I'm teaching anyone a lesson. I, I I think that, you know, my mission and what I'm supposed to be doing in my job is very opinion writing, uh, opinion oriented writing. Um, and I personally can't view things that happen in the world of baseball uh, without also acknowledging that the rest of the world exists. Now, I can watch a game, obviously, and tune out the world for three hours while I'm watching it. Uh, but what I'm writing about the things I often write about, such as the labor situation, the collective bargaining agreements, uh, the business of baseball, mm. uh, you know, things like the chief Wahoo mascot for the Cleveland Indians. You can't talk about any of the things that surround sports without acknowledging that the real world exists. And if you're going to acknowledge that the real world exists, you have to talk about how that interacts with people and how that affects people practically. And I, I just I am unwilling to, for example, talk about the labor situation in baseball without talking about how the owners of baseball teams draw in far more revenue than they used to. And part of the reason they draw in Mm -hmm. revenue is because they have a monopoly that's been granted to them by the United States Congress. And because of that, uh, you know, they're able to do things like get public tax dollars for their state. I mean, you you can't Mm -hmm. not get into Mm -hmm. politics if you want to explain most of these issues fully. Um, So I just think it's impossible, at least from the sort of writing that I'm doing and the sorts of topics that I want to cover to not bring in the other world. Uh, What I won't do and what I'm accused of doing often, but I I really won't do is I'm not looking to shoehorn 
whatever political hobby horse I'm riding on a particular Wednesday into my baseball coverage. If I'm writing about, uh, you know, about uh, Mike Trout going three for four and driving in five runs, I'm not going to find some way to to talk about Hillary Clinton or something. It just it doesn't make sense to do that. People think I do that because they're hypersensitive to any discussion of politics. But, um, you know, when it flows in naturally, yes, I'm going to bring it up and I won't hesitate to do so. Do you, do you feel at all as though uh, baseball clubs have lost their moorings as community institutions? Because I think there's a, there's a view that particularly the bigger soccer clubs here in the UK absolutely have. Um, and that's because they've been sold to often uh, foreign ownership. Yeah, you guys have all the Russians own all your football teams, right? Isn't yeah, it? yeah, the Middle, Middle Easterns, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, a diff, it's a different problem, but it's uh, a similar diagnosis. In actual fact, if you look at you know Everton or Manchester City, they do a huge amount in the city, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It's like uh, the corporate personality of the baseball clubs is the, is the sum total of what they are now. They, they don't seem to be community institutions any longer. Well, I, I certainly won't say that we've gone as far down the road as, say, you know, the Premier League clubs have or something where mm-hmm. we have, because most all, I think all of our ownership, with the exception of the Seattle Mariners, which is uh, owned by a Japanese conglomerate, but a very hands-off ownership, mm-hmm. um, they're all owned by, I, I won't say local businessmen in the sense that they're small town, you know, guys who own a, a storefront or anything. Mm-hmm. These are all very, very rich men. Um but they still, for the most part, are moored or at least based in their community. I, I I will not say that they have that community identity that we think about it when we think about, oh, gee, let's do something nice for our, for our town. Um, they're businessmen. They're international businessmen. I mean, the guy that owns the Red Sox owns what team does he own over there? Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah. Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and there there are others. And uh, uh and, and there is the charitable component that I think is probably even more strong today than it was in the past. Uh, community foundations and, and work in the community and things like that. I, certainly in terms of dollars spent and probably man hours spent, I think there is more involvement publicly. But I, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on any baseball teams here. I, I, don't, I won't say it's cynical but it's certainly part of just a, oh, that's a box we have to check to be a mm. local sports team. Mm. We are obligated to do community things. It's not some, oh, let's rally around for Boston. It's it's more like, well, we're a big company in Boston. We're supposed to do these things. And I can't go to that party or I can't go to that meeting if I haven't also showed up on this board for this charitable organization. I think <laughs> it's more along those lines. And, and of course, they always want to keep one foot in the civic institution uh, ring for when they want a new stadium or if they want some sort of favor from local governments. Uh, it's amazing how quickly a baseball owner will cast his local sports team as an institution of the people of the city <laughs> when they need tax dollars to pay for a renovation for the left field bleachers. So uh, there's a little bit of that that is cynical, yes. Uh, I don't think there's become a detachment yet where we just happen to be doing business in Milwaukee, but really we're something else, which that's a weird example because the guy who owns the Brewers lives in Los Angeles, but still people <laughs> in Milwaukee think of the Milwaukee Brewers as a local thing. And I don't think that's, we've really lost that yet. Great. Um, I wanted to sort of talk about your readership as well, um, because certainly following your interactions with quite a lot of your readers on, on Twitter, you get a sense that, some of them don't really like you very much, and, and I, I kind of, I kind of wonder what, why you give them the time of day. I, I find it really interesting. You probably are, certainly in my consciousness, uh, 
with the exception of Keith Law, the the baseball writer that spends the most time engaging with you know harebrained people who uh, probably need to put the sherry down. <laughs> well, I, I think part of that is both Keith and I live in similar circumstances. We both write largely from home and have a <laughs> lot of time on our hands. Um, you know, part of it is because of my legal background. I, you know, I haven't given up the old me completely. And, and part of me <laughs> is always spoiling for a bit of a fight. Um, and and I, I don't back down from it. I, and I also don't get emotionally involved. I, I spent three years in law school and 11 years in practice learning how to make very pitched and passionate arguments in which I did not become emotionally involved and, and overwhelmed with. Uh, so that's part of it. It doesn't bother me that much the way it bothers a lot of people to, to sort of get into dust ups with people. Um, some of it is because I just happen to write things that are a little more controversial or at least uh, at least peak people a little bit more than, than other people. If you're going to stop talking about just the X's and O's of a game and start talking about some social issues or political issues, you are naturally going to raise the passions of some of your readers. So I, I accept that I have fomented that uh, to a large degree in my readership. That said, it's fun. Um, it's also, I, I don't know. Do you, do you guys know who Howard Stern is? Is Howard Stern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't know if he's international or if he's just an American guy. You know, the, the movie about Howard Stern when he was first coming up as a controversial DJ was, uh, you know, the, the people that love said they loved him, listened to him for X number of minutes a day. The people who said they hated him, listened to him X times two number of minutes per day, because they want to hear what horrible thing he's going to say next. And you know what, uh, I don't want to sound overly cynical, but clicks are clicks. And if people are reading me because they want to yell at me or they hate what I'm saying, uh, they're still reading me and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a philosophy that, that, that we, we certainly bear on now, now and again. Um, <laughs> maybe we're slightly more antagonistic than you. Uh, certainly about, <laughs> there are some topics where I, where I, I, I to quote a, a very famous British uh, comedy, I won't let it lie. Um, <laughs> now, look, I know this is your podcast and you're asking me questions, but I want to ask you a question because uh -huh. I, I've wondered about this is, you know, baseball is obviously not a huge sport in the UK. Uh, do you, is a lot of your readership and listenership uh, people that you're educating still, or is it more of a group of people who are gravitating to you because they already love baseball too? And so I didn't know if, you know, some of that antagonism comes from you, you have sort of a teacher-student relationship with, with say, maybe novice baseball fans, or if that's just something I'm making up in my head? Um, I'd say it's not that. I'd, I'd say, I think it's a mix of the both, actually, to, 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 be, to be honest with you. I think it's more, the, it's more the latter than the former, so it's more people who, who already know about it and are, are looking to get a, a different and hopefully authentic take on, on, on what it is that they're experiencing that, that represents where they're coming at it from but absolutely um we we're picking up new listeners all the time a lot of whom are coming to the game because they're excited about the london series because they've been to the states and they want to find ways to try and continue to latch onto the game um and we hopefully manage to to, to, to help them with that in terms of the antagonism I, I think that there are there there are just aspects of baseball culture that that i i i don't care about and i don't or i don't care for and i I'm I'm not I'm not going to hold back on that. Like I find baseball um, movies absolutely like soporific nonsense, and oh, I, almost all of them. Yeah, they're, they're oh, kind of, the movie Field of Dreams. I, I hate more than anything, yeah. and I will fight with people over Field of Dreams more more than any. People hate me for hating Field of Dreams more than anything. I could get on 
the internet right now and say every single one of your mothers is terrible and I hate you all. And they would say, that's fine. That's Craig being Craig. And I say, I hate Field of Dreams and they want to kill me. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a similar, similarly bad reputation for, for hating on uh, four or five uh, different baseball clubs, which I, I think says that I have a, a certain perspective on, on, on my comments on, on, on baseball clubs, but also that I'm being balanced because it's, you know, there's at least half a dozen uh, fan groups within the UK who think that their, their baseball club is, is my least favorite. Oh, um, that's crazy. Have you seen, you know, Buster Olney for ESPN? Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> Someone, uh, it might have been actually Keith Law who did this, his coworker at ESPN, uh, went and searched Twitter and it didn't take him very long and found comments from fans accusing Buster Olney of hating all 30 teams, like different 30 different mm-hmm. people saying you hate my team the most. This is why you're biased against my team. And Buster wears that like uh, like a crown. He loves it. Of course, I hate you all. Everyone's biased against you. It has nothing to do with your biases. It's me hating you. Sure it is. <laughs> yeah, Buster, Buster wears it rather lightly. I, I I steer into it and play the play the pantomime villain. But <laughs> I, I, I leave my I leave my wrestling fandom and my position as chief heel. Uh, <laughs> we've got the rest of the crew involved. Um, I, I wanted to ask about your personal philosophy on on politics and and baseball and how how the two mix because they feel somewhat like oil and water. You've talked a lot about some of the social issues, about the wage suppression, labor issues, uh, rent seeking behavior yeah. from uh, owners in terms of uh, their relationship with the, the public and the taxpayers in, in their regions. It, your politics clearly doesn't align with that of the sport that you've chosen to spend your, your time, your waking hours covering. Does that yeah. ever get <laughs> nauseating, infuriating and difficult? Um, I, I've known it for so long and I've known what baseball is socially for so long that I don't let it frustrate me too much. Um, I, I have come to baseball and baseball has existed much longer than me. And (laughs) I'm not going to pretend that my disagreeing with its general political and social orientation is, is going to change uh, just because I don't like it. Um, so it's it, in some ways, it's like I've been invited to someone's house who I disagree with. I'm not going to be the first person to, to you know, turn over the dining room table. Um, <laughs> but it, it is a fact, though. It, it, baseball is a very conservative institution on many different levels. Um, the sport, just because of how old it is and because of its tradition in the United States and because its roots are so in the 19th century, um, nothing old in the United States exists. I mean, we, we just, we're, it's not a country that does old well. And as far as any institutions go, baseball is perhaps one of the, you know, when you get away from just the mere constitution and the fact of our government, after that, it's baseball. I mean, everything else has changed. It was here before the Industrial Revolution really hit the United States. Um, and so it has these, you know, very conservative roots. And it's it's, even though, there's a lot of fake history about baseball. Baseball really actually grew up in the New York city area. It was a very urban game, but uh, it it has this myth of being a pastoral game and a a game that farmers would come and play. And uh, it's carried that even though historians have shown that that's not really the case. Um, It's, it's players are, especially now, even more so now maybe come from very conservative stock. Uh, now, players from Latin America are, are a different category, but American-born players, especially since we now have fewer and fewer African-American players playing the game, 
they're overwhelmingly from the US South uh, or from wealthy suburban and ex-urban areas. And uh, part of that is because of weather. You know, you can play baseball year round in the South uh, and that selects for players who can play year round. And so you get more of those guys. The, the suburban and ex-urban thing, it, it selects for wealthy people because baseball has become a very expensive sport to play at a high level if you're a kid here. Um, you don't really play in your school and your high school anymore. If you have talent, you play on these traveling teams that are very expensive and require a big time investment from your parents to, to get you at all these games all over the place. So the players now are overwhelmingly conservative. So when you talk to players, you interact with them, almost all of them are coming at you with a very conservative worldview. And of course, after they begin playing, they become very wealthy. And that certainly bolsters the conservative worldview. Uh, and then of course, the owners are billionaires. Uh, they, you know, everything that goes with that. And then fans, again, as we talked about before, more so with baseball, I think, than any other sport, look to baseball as a way to escape the real world. And while they will characterize that as getting away from politics, that itself is a political choice. Believing that you can insulate yourself from the real world problems by focusing on something is, is a choice you make. And it's a choice you can only make if you're able to do that. If you are mm -hmm. able to say, I don't want to think about you know, X problem today, it's because you don't have to. And so mm -hmm. it selects in the fandom even, a certain sort of fandom anyway for conservative mm -hmm. people. So yeah, being dropped into that milieu is, uh, it's, it's kind of difficult sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in, it's interesting that you, you put it how you have. I was just thinking when you were talking about the, the age of baseball and its place in history and, and harking back to the comment you made about the People's History Museum that quite a number of those banners and artifacts that you saw in that museum are actually older than baseball. And when you put oh, yeah. it that, that, that's, that's, and that, that style of people and community-led politics in, in the UK is is not a... Uh, an eons long tradition, shall we say? It has itself approximately 150 years of, of history. Yeah, but that's that, a blink yeah. of an eye for you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm not going to go into where uh, how how unenthused I was by the Freedom Trail in Boston. I, I, I was I, I used to work in Westminster, mate. I've seen old buildings. Um, yeah. <laughs> If, if you've ever spent yourself uh, some time out in California or something, uh, it's amazing what they think is an old building. It's, it's oh yeah, I have. And, uh, yeah, that, that that really is. I, you talked a lot about players there, and I thought that's really interesting. So a, a couple of questions. One, one which is uh, has got a bit more grit to it. One which is incredibly glib. So we'll start with the the one where I'm looking for for a, a proper answer. Do you think that the travel teams, the, the the baseball as a capitalist commodity culture that's sort of popped out of nowhere in baseball in the last 10, 15 years is is a real problem. And do you think it's it, it, it's sustainable? And do you think that MLB really want to change it? Because Rob Manfred, this is something that he, he pays lip service to quite well, um, but in reality... It's, it's a problem. It's a it. problem because... What it does is it's it just takes a huge number of potentially great baseball players out of the talent pool. Um, players who are poor, players from inner cities. Uh, these were all guys who really through the 1960s, 1970s were still playing baseball at a very high mm -hmm. rate. Um, you know, because you could play for your high school and you can get scouted and you can get signed. No one is looking at you. Baseball teams are not looking at anyone if they're not already on this very high level of competition. And it is high competition. I don't want to say that the players that come out of this are somehow inferior. In fact, in some ways, they're probably superior. The skills these guys have at age 17 and 18 now are, are probably vastly superior to what players used to have. 
but the specialization is such um, and the expense is such that if I'm a player uh, and I'm 14 and I can't afford to go on this team, I'm going to go play basketball or I'm going to go play football. Mm -hmm. All of our best athletes in the United States now gravitate far more to football and basketball and increasingly, especially in the last 10 or 15 years to soccer um, where Baseball is not getting the best athletes. Baseball is getting the best baseball players. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's bad because it, you know, Andrew McCutcheon, the outfielder, uh, wrote an article a few years ago about how against all odds it was that he became a Major League Baseball player because he was one of the very, very few poor players uh, from a poor area that didn't get on those traveling teams that somehow found a way because a couple of people did him a favor and got him on a team and got him a showcase and things like that. Um, you know, 20, well, 30, 40 years before, of course he would have been playing baseball. How many Andrew McCutcheons are we missing now? Probably a lot. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about it from from that point of view, um, a, a perspective that I I think I was aware of, but I, I I'd not really processed. My 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 glib question, maybe you've touched on it in mentioning Andrew McCutcheon, is in in your experience, like are there any Democrat baseball players? Like they oh, say, yeah. keep themselves themselves though. <laughs> I'm sure oh there yeah. Are. Oh, there sure are. Um, there, there are. It's a very small percentage, I think, compared to the population at large. Um, uh, but, you know, a, a very liberal activist, I don't even know if he classifies himself as a Democrat or if he classifies himself as to the left of Democrats, but uh, Sean Doolittle, oh, yeah. the uh, closer for the Washington Nationals, he's he and both his wife, Erin uh, uh, Dolan, she, um, they, they both are, are deeply involved in uh, in leftist politics, I think is probably a way to put it. Um, there, there are a good number of them. They, they're not as vocal. Uh, and then you, you tend to find a lot of the Latino players, players from the Dominican Republic, players from Venezuela. Uh, they're all over the map differently politically, depending on, you know, what they're doing in the United States now, what their situation is at home and everything. But that whole idea of the conservative baseball player from Georgia or Texas or something like that, though, is, 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 is still pretty, uh, pretty prevalent. I I wanted to just sort of to, cut, sort of circle back there. Do, do you think that this is being exacerbated in any way by this lack of life experience? That this sort of sausage machine that is perfect game and the like of it, all they do is play baseball. That that they're not they're not having their minds open by by lived experience. Is that is that making that that problem even worse and and sort of cocooning them even more? I, I think that doesn't help. I, I, I think that the cake is baked even before then, though, just because they're not able, e even able to play on that level in those situations if they're not from a somewhat wealthy background. Mm. And if their parents aren't living in a very nice suburb or, or even in you know wealthy circumstances, uh, that's what gets them to do that. And I, the number one predictor of what your politics are going to be tends to be what your parents' politics are. And if you sure. grow up in a conservative household in a wealthy suburban area outside of Atlanta, Georgia, or Dallas, Texas, you're just far more likely for a million cultural reasons to be like your parents, and they're more likely to be conservative. Absolutely, quite so. So you, you've you've said yourself already that you 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 live in Ohio, and you, again, you've touched on this already, you cover the sport remotely from from home other than it giving you time and tide to engage with the the many many lovely people who want to hit you up on twitter <laughs> what other specific challenges does that present for you it must be difficult at times um not so much because not a ton of my job expectations are to go to the ballpark and actually cover a game in person i mm -hmm. i've done that i've covered six or seven world series i've gone to five or six all-star games I tend to go to spring training most years. 
Um, so I, I do do some of that, but I'm not going to the ballpark like a beat writer is 80 games a year, 100 games a year, 150 games a year. If that was the case, it would be hard because I am 120 or 130 miles in either direction from the two closest major league mm -hmm. teams. Cleveland and Cincinnati are a, a very long two-hour drive for me. Um, Pittsburgh's about three hours. Detroit's about three hours. Um, so that would be hard then, but it hasn't come up for me too much. The, the, the biggest thing is because I don't have a major league baseball team in my city, uh, the Baseball Writers Association of America doesn't find it all that important to give me a, a membership in their club, which would give me uh, credentials and access to any game I want to go to because, hey, you don't live there. What do you need it for? But that's that's not that important. Oh, my goodness. I think I, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could call, for example, I could call the Cleveland Indians and say, hey, this is Craig at NBC. I'm going to be there tomorrow. Can I have a credential? And they'll absolutely say yes almost every single time. I've never been denied a credential that I've asked for. So it's just a little bit more of an administrative hassle. You can't just wave your pass in front of them, I get. Okay. No, I can't just go up to the gate and say, hey, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be on the list. <laughs> how different is is the climate for you when you're in like a melting pot like you were at the winter meetings a, a few weeks ago how, how do you not get overwhelmed by that because the difference between that and craig sat in his front room in ohio is it 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 must be worlds apart it's uh it's good for me i i should probably even get out more than i do i should take my computer and go to starbucks and work around real people more often <laughs> than i do um, I've been going to the winter meetings now for, I just finished, that was my 10th winter meetings. This one passed in December. So, uh, it's not overwhelming anymore. If anything, it's, it's, it's a great place to meet people that I interact with online all year and we can actually talk in person and have a beer and stuff. And that's kind of nice. Um, it, it is, sometimes it's a little strange when I do go out and I do go to a ballpark or I, or, or, or something like that. And I have to remember things about, uh, you know, make sure your, your phone is charged and, uh, you know, make sure that you know where you're going to eat lunch and stuff. But working at home has its own set of hassles and uh, uh, leads to its own amount of complacency, no matter what field you're in. <laughs> Do I need to get dressed today? <laughs> yeah, pants are an issue. My, my wife works very close to me. She works about two miles from here. And so she's able to come home for, uh, come home for lunch most days. And, uh, if she shows up at noon and comes home for lunch and I'm still wearing my pajama pants, I, I, I get a side eye. I get a bit of a, a of a look. <laughs> yeah. I, I work from home quite a lot. I, I'm, I'm never, I'm not quite gone into the pajamas yet, but only <laughs> a matter of time. Um, I, I wanted to ask about your view. And this is, this is in the context of some of the conversation about how you engage with, with people online. What's your view on the, like new me, I call them new media approaches to sports, where the people delivering the content are as big, if not bigger, stars than the people that they're commenting commenting on. Like so, you, the barstools, and I'm talking about barstools in the abstract, not the specific personalities, because you know we've all got views on those. And the Bill Simmonses, do you think that's gone too far for me as a as a as a purist, as someone who's interested in the sport first and interested in good opinion, good thinking, and writing? It feels a bit odd. Do you have a view as someone who's been involved in that scene for for for, for a while? Uh, you know, I I'll say I limit myself to baseball. Um, I I spend almost zero time thinking about football, basketball, hockey. I, I know that there are personalities in in other sports who who rise to that level. Baseball, 
I have found that that has not been a thing for a couple of reasons. A lot of times the biggest baseball media personalities will be former players. And there is this just built in pathological, you will be humble and you are not bigger than the game sort of <laughs> uh, mindset in baseball. That's, and that's another topic. Of, we can go a half hour about that if we wanted to, about <laughs> how baseball players are just taught from the youngest of ages, once they become professionals anyway, that you are nothing. You have to build up your reputation and the game is bigger than you. And don't you dare make yourself uh, the center of attention. That's a huge, huge thing. And, you know, it's it's valuable on some level, but it's also not very fun because you don't get a lot of big personalities in baseball mm. because of that. Um, but that is a huge uh, part of baseball culture. And it, it certainly flows into the media as well. So if you're a former, Alex Rodriguez is probably the biggest former star who is currently actively involved in baseball media. He is the, uh, you know, the lead color commentator for ESPN's weekly Sunday night baseball game. Uh, he is the most self-effacing announcer. You would never know that he hit 700 home runs and was a multi-time MVP and World Series champion and at one time the best player in the game because uh, he just won't talk about it. So he doesn't do that. And uh, I don't know that anyone in baseball media really does that. You see a little bit in basketball and, and football where some of the big scoop stars, some of the guys who are very online and, uh, I, you know, uh, Adrian Wojciechowski, or I'm probably mispronouncing his name. He's a big basketball reporter for ESPN. Everybody talks about Woj like he's a big deal. There's really not an equivalent. The closest, I would say, is Ken Rosenthal, uh, who writes for The Athletic now and, and works for MLB Network. He is probably the, the best and biggest profile Major League Baseball reporter. He is the most humble man who never draws any attention to himself whatsoever in the world. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, that that that's that's really interesting. Your 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 comment on A Rod is is absolutely spot on, and it's it's not in keeping with his behavior as a player. Like no, no not at all. With soccer players and basketball players, you know, look at the, the way LeBron carries himself on the court. So he's God's gift to sports, and 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 some might argue that he is. That's how Arod played on the field. Um, yeah, and, and everybody hated him for it. I yeah, mean, he was a, he was loathed by his even his teammates. Uh, but he doesn't do that anymore. He learned a big lesson. He was humbled very greatly during the the performance enhancing drug stuff in 2013-14. So he's he's gone a complete personality makeover in that time, and people have called it the Arodissance. In that uh, he's gone from being one of the most hated people in all of baseball to a guy that people like, and they think he's kind of goofy and fun. Yeah, um, some of the pictures of him uh, swinging a baseball bat in in London at the West Ham Stadium. Were... Oh God! Yeah, if you would have told me in twenty thirteen, if you, yeah, if you would have told me in twenty thirteen that Major League Baseball was going to send Alex Rodriguez to London as an ambassador for baseball's first regular season games in Europe. Uh, I would have told you you were nuts. He was persona non grata in Major League Baseball. They were talking about banning him for life and that he was a stain on the game. And now he is the ambassador posing in front of Tower Bridge with a baseball. It's like hilarious. <laughs> I think hilarious in a good way, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love it because I, I was always defending A-Rod on some level because I'm just contrarian that way. But uh, uh, it, it does tell you how quickly things can change. Absolutely does. So I want to get into your connection with the UK because there's a, a reason why we we began to have a conversation with you via Twitter and it's not just because you'll you'll talk to any old any old soul, I hope. Uh, and also oh, no. I'm very discriminating. <laughs> you seem to have gravitated towards 
the British baseball community somewhat over the last few months. And I know you met one of our nearest and dearest, and we'll talk about that that sweet soul himself in a moment. But you're an Anglophile, particularly oh, in your music taste. So is that a long-running thing? And, and, and how did it start? It, it's, I, you know, Anglophile is probably a, a bit too strong. I, it's, you know, I, I have been a fan of, of British pop music my entire life. Um, when I was a little kid and you, you know, you hear things that everybody hears like the Beatles and stuff, fine. But in the eighties, when I was a young kid, I was listening to uh, uh, British synth pop and human league and Depeche mode and, and things like that. And I listened to the cure and I listened to the Smiths and all that. I just, I don't know how, whatever subcultures I was involved in, in junior high school and high school, I, that's the music that I was, that I got into. Uh, that continued into the '90s. Obviously, Britpop became a very huge thing here, not nowhere near as big as it was there. You know, but you know, we had Oasis to some extent, Blur. Uh, but I was then, you know, looking for Pulp, and I was looking, at, you know, all these other bands and um, and Suede and stuff like that. Uh, and then what? You know, that's so. That's always been a thing. Um, and then my wife, who I met, she's my second wife. I, I met her in 2011. And we got married a couple of years ago. We've been together for a little over seven years now. Um, she is a gigantic Britpop fan, was always. Her father worked in England for about five or six years. She visited a lot when he was working over there. Uh, got deeply, deeply involved in uh, with, with the music scene in England. And she is a huge James fan. That is her favorite band. I was familiar with James. Uh, you're only familiar with James in the United States through the song Laid. No one else knows anything about James in the United States except for the song Laid. Um, <laughs> whereas I found in England, a lot of people that don't know anything about James, they only know the song Sit Down, but that's yeah. the same, the same different side of the same coin. Uh, but Allison, my wife, is huge into James and she got me into James and uh, they quickly became probably my favorite band. And uh, for our honeymoon, we delayed it a year, but this last May for our honeymoon, James did a tour of uh, some small clubs, mostly in the North. Uh, and they, they don't play in the United States. They haven't been to the United States for about 10 years. And so we decided, screw it. We're going to England. We're going to do our honeymoon over there. We're going to follow James around. So we went to uh, Warrington, Halifax, Blackburn of all places. Uh, we were in Preston uh, to follow James around to these little music hall on this little music hall tour as they were getting ready to release their most recent album. And uh, it was probably the most fun music experience of my entire life. And it was my third trip to England. Uh, it was my longest trip to England. But damn it, I've made so many friends there, mostly through music. Uh, I've enjoyed myself every time I've been there. And if someone gave me the opportunity to pick up and move to the UK right now, no matter what problems you guys are having, our problems are pretty bad too. I'll take it. I, I would do it. And a lot of it also has to do with weather. I, I have to say it's weather too. I can't do heat. I don't do sun. England, I'm the only person in the United States that looks at England's climate and says, yeah, that's for me. <laughs> I think I'm the only person in, in Northern England that, that actually likes the climate here. So you and I, you, you move here, and we'll have a kinship over that for sure. I like to be able to regulate my temperature too. I get very, very flustered when I'm too hot, too warm. That's really, yeah. really interesting that, that that's how you, how you came to James though. And I, I, I knew that you'd, you'd been over last May uh, and having a tour around all of those places. I was, I was interesting to get your, your impression of, Warrington and Preston and Blackburn. I, I, I sense, you know, I, I, I've been going to all those places for a long, long time, chiefly through following an absolutely awful football club that tends to play in places like that. <laughs> I sense there's some kinship with with the Midwest actually, because they are 
post-industrial towns yes. that still got a sort of dirty beauty to them. Did you did you think the same? They well, yeah. I don't know if I'll go with dirty beauty, but it's certainly a familiarity. Um, I I grew up in I live in Ohio now, but I grew up in West Virginia, which is it's a neighboring state, but it's a very different state. That's more of a coal mining state, um, and that's where I grew up. Um, and then I came to Ohio, and I've been here. And between West Virginia, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, it is a very post-mining, post-industrial kind of world, a lot of towns that have seen better days. Um, I, I, I just sort of instinctively defend towns like that because they're very much maligned. Uh, you know, our, our, our media here has become increasingly national and it's always based on the coasts. Anything that's not Los Angeles or not New York or Washington, D.C. is considered the hinterlands, um, not thought of much, stereotyped heavily. Uh, that bothers me to a great deal. Um, you know, so I've been to London a couple of times. I'm sure it's very similar where, you know, if, if it's, if it's not London or if it's not, you know, I know Manchester and Liverpool are larger, but I'm sure towns like that get very short shrift. I'm not going to do one of those things where you say, oh, there's this hidden beauty and it's wonderful. Cause no, I mean, some of these places are terrible. I had a guy almost slug me in Blackburn, you know, it's just, <laughs> well, it was the day it was like the FA, what do they call it? Is it the FA cup? FA cup yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was FA cup final and United lost, I think to Chelsea maybe. And uh, that match was going on as we were walking around Blackburn and it was almost over and it was very clear that, that United was going to lose. And there were some very, very drunk people just wandering around and we're just trying to find an Indian restaurant or somewhere we could eat. And I almost got punched by a guy. And I'm not going to be one of those people that go home and say, oh, the beauty of people in Blackburn. No, because that guy <laughs> sucked. And, and Blackburn in some ways, hey, nothing personal. Blackburn is not a place where I'm going to sit down and make roots. But I, I did like to see uh, places that, tourists might not go very often or that are not geared towards, you know, tourists anyway, and trying to put a, a, a sunny face. I, I like to see where people live when I travel anywhere, whether it's in the United States or in other countries, I like to go where people actually live life. And, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm one of them or do anything like that because that's condescending, but, but I do like to observe actual human life as opposed to, uh, you know, going to very wealthy areas or very touristy areas and things like that. I, you know, so Blackburn is what it is. Uh, I thought Preston was very pretty. I, you know, I was only there a day. I loved Halifax for some reason. I, I just, I just hit Halifax on a wonderful day. I found a great pub. I met a couple of really nice people. Uh, they were very, very nice to me. And then the James show that night in Halifax was fantastic. Plus we got to meet the band in the hotel we were staying at right afterwards because they were happened to be staying there too. Um, so it was just a great experience. So I'm always going to have wonderful feelings about uh, Halifax. And then I spent two days in Manchester, uh, which I just thought it was a great city. Um, it was just very cool for me. And, you know, my wife is going crazy in Manchester because, you know, she's such a Smiths and Morrissey fan and James is from there and everything else. So she's just freaking out and she's, you know, trying to go around and find all the scenes from 24 hour party people and where they were filmed and things like that. So it was, it was just a great fun trip and I'm sure I'm sounding silly about it right now. No, no, absolutely not. It's, it's really, it's really nice to hear that you, you thought that Halifax is really lovely. It's, it's having a bit of a renaissance. It is one of those places you get two types of, uh, national coverage of places like Blackburn and Halifax you get um let's get some dumb people with strong accents doing vox pops about things they don't understand uh yes. usually Brexit or you get hey actually it's not shit here think peace <laughs> is one of those places that uh that you get those about uh, you know a bit like hey Austin's good remember Texas is just full of yokels apart from Austin it's kind of that sort of stuff 
Oh yeah, you see that. Yeah, and we see we get that in West Virginia sometimes. There's a couple of cute little funky art community towns in West Virginia. Hey, not everyone here is a dumb yokel. Um, <laughs> when I was in Halifax, actually, I was in a pub, and the guy there, we were talking about that kind of a thing because I was asking him about the town, and he said that it gets uh, what is it a shortage of the north? Is that is that the, the neighborhood in London that's supposed to be trendy and hipster? Or whatever. Oh, yeah, shortage. Shortage. yeah, 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 yeah. Shortage of the north, and he he was just laughing as ass off at that because he they're so sick of that because it's just you know london media people coming up saying look you can find gourmet food here and stuff like that <laughs> there's a beautiful open square that's had a lot of money around spent around about yeah yeah exactly that sort of uh, pa patronizing uh, paternal yes that's good. the word yeah patronizing uh, is the best word for it <laughs> So did you, I, I, I wondered if you said, I, I guess you probably did, given that you said you went around looking for the 24-hour the party people, uh, landmarks and relics, because one thing in Manchester that always makes me chuckle, which is to do with James, is that the Hacienda, the world, the world's famous <laughs> It's, it's Hacienda, condos now, right? <laughs> it's, it's condos or, or flats, as we call them. Uh, uh -huh. It has it has a, a blue plaque, which in the UK is, is what we put up when we want to uh, talk about the heritage of a building. And it doesn't say this was the hacienda where lots of people took lots of drugs. The Smiths played one of their first gigs, New Order. It says this is where James played their first ever gig. I don't know if you uh, you saw I didn't that. You know, I want to to landmark. I didn't see that. I I went by there, but I didn't see the blue plaque. I didn't look for it. I hadn't been looking at uh, you know tour guides or anything like that. And I the, again, yes. of course, I'm just going from pub I'll to pub. I'll go take a photo of it for you. And I'll oh, that'd be that'd be great. Which. <laughs> That's hilarious because, you know, everything huge that happened there and Tony Wilson and all that kind of stuff, you'd think you'd mention that stuff first. But no, James played their first gig here. It was probably the worst gig ever. So it always it always made my me chuckle and it, it makes my my partner rather miffed. She's a massive, <laughs> massive Joy Division fan. So, you know. Oh, yeah. For other reasons. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I guess you know there, there's a, there's a bit of a darkness when you want to talk about Joy Division, but where there isn't with James. <laughs> True, true. Um, so moving that through 90 degrees and talking a little bit about the UK baseball community, I wanted to ask if you were you were surprised that we existed when we sort of came onto your radar in the last six to 12 months or so. Yeah, not surprised that it existed because I, I assume that it, just knowing, you know, my I, my brother lives in San Diego, California. He's not a baseball mm -hmm. fan, but he he's somebody who will get into any obscure level of fandom that happens to be tickling his fancy at the time. He's into K-pop. He's into the, I have learned that no matter where you go in the world, you will find a cell of fandom for anything there. Um, so it did not surprise me at all that, that there are a lot of UK baseball fans. What did surprise me a little bit is how readily you all have seemed to pick favorite teams. <laughs> and, and what it's, what it's curious, I haven't talked to enough of you guys about this. Um, and I'm trying to get NBC to pay to send me to the London series. They're not going to do it at all. They've already told me they're not going to, but I keep bugging them. And one <laughs> thing I want to do is I want to say, okay, uh, UK Astros, how do you become an Astros fan and why? I don't know. I mean, here, almost every baseball fan is because their dad rooted for the Tigers or they grew up in Detroit or they grew up in Houston. And you just have this natural way. There's always a story that's sort of organic on how you became a fan of your team. How do you just – and I guess we have the opposite problem here because we have a lot of soccer fans. We have a lot of Premier League fans here. And the big conversation that anyone has when they decide to really get into English soccer is, well, how do I pick an EPL team? Um, because we have no 
reason to pick a team otherwise. So I guess you guys probably have the same kind of thing with baseball. How does that even work? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. I mean, we've we've had a few conversations on the podcast and over social media about picking teams and people asking us saying, you know, I, I went to a game or I'm really interested in this, you know, for the reasons that you mentioned about your brother, I'm interested in subcultures. I, I, I think that, that that cap fits with me. Absolutely. And they said, oh, help me pick. How do I do it? It's like it's like drawing straws for some people. Some people just go, oh, it's this one or it's this one and, and, and good for them. Others, they visited a place often with the UK, which is the reason why there's so many Marlins and, and Rays fans here. Florida is a really popular holiday destination. So oh, that yeah, one, yeah. New York, Boston, Boston particularly with the football links with Liverpool now. There's that's yeah, that's I would say Liverpool fans probably are. Are you Red Sox fans or do you hate John Henry? I, that's I guess I well now you probably don't hate John Henry because Liverpool is very good. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of them are actually. But the ones that really intrigue me is is how do you end up a a Cincinnati Reds or a Arizona Diamondbacks fan when when you're from I don't know Birmingham or, right. or Aberdeen, right? Well, you know, what's funny is when I was talking a couple of years, every few years I, I try, I fail every time. And especially NBC has the broadcast. My, my employer has the broadcast rights for Premier League football here in the United States. So we were all pushed. Hey, you guys should promote it some. You should get into it. And I, I try, but I fail. And whenever I've tried, I, I'll do that. I'll say, why should I pick this team, that team, whatever? Um, and, and two things came up. One, I have some English heritage not very strong English heritage, but my great grandmother is from like the West Midlands or something. And uh, so someone said, oh, well, you should root for West Brom. And then someone else says, don't ever root for West Brom. Are you kidding me? They're boring and terrible. So, you know, that, so that was that. I, I don't even know if any of that was true. I, I was told they play a very boring brand of football. So they I did. shouldn't root they for West Brom. Time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. And then they got relegated. So who cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then other people are saying, okay, what is your favorite baseball team? What qualities do you like about that baseball team? What in the culture of the fandom do you like? And then they try to do, you know, graft it onto English football. I, I don't know if that works, but it's something. Yeah, well, that, I think that those are the similar things that we, we tell people when they ask us that question, which we get more often than, uh, than you might imagine, actually. Back to the point about introducing people to, to the game and helping them connect with something. I think the thing about baseball, and and it's interesting to hear you say that about soccer or football as, as a sport, is that I think there's so much to it that you can connect with that doesn't, it's not about the teams. I think that the pace of the game, uh, the fact is, although you're saying it's debunked, it's a sort of a, a part of history, that pastoral impression of that the sport, that narrative that it's woven around itself. I think that's I think that's nostalgic and it's incredibly appealing to people in this country. I think we are, we are quite actually, you know, I don't want to get onto Brexit, but we are quite a nostalgic and backwards facing country. Nostalgia and baseball are, I mean, there is no greater source of nostalgia or, or focus of nostalgia in American culture than baseball. I I would make that argument. I'd say more so than music, more so than anything. Baseball is, is the, the, the high church of nostalgia in American culture. And I, I'm actually a very anti-nostalgic person. I try to fight nostalgia. I think some of it is because it's a reaction to all the nostalgic people around me in the baseball community. Uh, but I, I do understand, even though I try to fight it and I don't like it, I totally understand that that is such a big part of the appeal of baseball. Something my father did uh, or my father taught me, something that I can look back to a golden age of my team or a golden age of my city and associate it with baseball. That's, that's such a huge thing that we don't have nearly as much, I suspect, as 
as British people do outside of baseball. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we historically, our country people have moved around a lot more and mm-hmm. uh, leave their hometowns and things like that. You don't really have that same level of nostalgia that we have in baseball. No, that's absolutely true. And it, it's an interesting point. So I, I have, I'm, I'm from the, the very extreme north of England, not, not far off Scotland. And my roots there are with sport, right? So I follow this, the, the football team that's from there. And I have uh, have had an increasingly close relationship and a very intense relationship for a period with that football club because I was so far away from it. And it was like an anchor institution of my life and the community that I grew up in and a place that I didn't really have an awful lot of draw to other than that. So that sort of feels like that's what baseball is. But I, I think I'm unusual. I think EPL... Premier League is, is, is really, really commoditized. It, 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 and that nostalgia point is, is not there. And therefore, I think the people who like baseball in the UK are drawn to baseball because they see that and it's something different. For me, I, I, I like the quiet. I think it's a very quiet game, very subtle. Uh, and I find that like that, that sort of quiet oasis of the baseball field or of the game itself within something that's presented in such a sort of flashy wrapper. I think it's really interesting. That's what draws me to it and why I continue to be so interested in it. it it's well, subtle. That, that might explain something. That, that might explain something to me about myself a little bit, because exactly what you're describing are, are all of the things that have drawn me to baseball. When I was a kid, I, I watched football and basketball and everything else. I've let those things go. There's something about the temperament, about the flow, about the mood, about the volume, about the orderliness about everything about baseball that appeals to me on an aesthetic level, no matter what's going on in the game, no matter what I'm mad about and writing about, that's a problem in the game. I can let that all drift away. Baseball is satisfying to me on this very visceral level in its calming sort of factors. And uh, to hear you describe that and, you know, I'm stereotyping, but I've heard people say, well, that's just something that English people like too. I can totally see that being a, a sport that, that appeals to, to people in the UK. Yeah, maybe maybe it's maybe it's the cricket fan in me. It, it shares shares some similar points. All I think baseball baseball is the essence of that. Absolutely, I'm a huge huge a huge huge cricket fan. But baseball, it, it's the essence of that sort of the three true outcomes. But every pitch is different. Cricket is not. It doesn't quite have that level of subtlety. And um, I'm going to talk your ear off. I know, and we're going to go on too long. But I, you know, a few years ago, I got really interested in the origins of baseball, the historic origins, because again, we have a whole, we we actively had the institution of baseball and the United States government come up with a phony history of baseball around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, they, they came up with a myth, a creation myth of baseball, because they were very worried about foreign influence in American culture. And so they came up with a story of how baseball was invented by an American war hero in this pastoral field. And, and it's crazy how they just completely made it up. So I got really interested in the actual origins of it. And there are historians who have done a lot of work on this. And it is very, very clear. It is, in fact, undeniable that baseball was never invented. It was just an organic game that developed between some mashup of cricket, rounders, and a game they played down in the South called Bat and Trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's a very English mashup of a game of a few bat and ball sports that, that primarily come from England. People hate to hear that. Even today, they don't want to hear that. It's American, damn it. It is not some 
evolved game that English schoolgirls play with flags. That's not that at all. And nope, sorry, it is. If you go watch Rounders, it's a lot more like that uh, than than it is like whatever Abner Doubleday was supposed to have invented in Cooperstown, New York in 1837. <laughs> all of the best ideas are stolen, or at least uh, <laughs> a sort of a slight transmogrification of the idea that you stole. I, you know, that, 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 that's, that's my day-to-day living. If people haven't worked me out yet that I've just, I've just given the game away. I wanted to ask you about, I mentioned in, in passing earlier on, a member, a, a really prominent member of our baseball community in the UK, although he spends very little time here in practical terms, which is, um, which is Joey, Joey Mellows or baseball yes. as we know him. So you met Joey at the winter meetings and you, you talk, I, I think, I don't think I'm putting too much into this, but I think you, you it felt like you you had a really engaging and interesting and quite eye-opening conversation with Joey. And I, I, I sort of wanted to sort took, of come back to that for those who had maybe missed it. Yeah, I, I took to Joey immediately. I you know I everyone following him. <laughs> I I started following him on Twitter not long before the winter meetings and we just said, Hey, we should meet up when we're both in Las Vegas and we did and uh we finally met up and unfortunately I probably uh I bought him far too many beers, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, no, we got along great. I thought he, he's a great guy. Um, just, just very nice, very engaging. Uh, he, he, that was his first winter meetings. There are people that go to the winter meetings for five or six years who are afraid to go up to people and talk to them and whatever. He didn't care at all. He was going up to people he wanted to talk to, which is exactly how you should do it. Um, fearless kind of guy in that regard. Hey, there's uh, this writer I like. I'm going to go talk to him. Great. Or, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? That's the perfect attitude to have. Everybody just everybody that I know that met him there liked him. And uh, and I liked him quite a bit, too. Very very good guy. Very good ambassador uh, for, uh, for, uh, for British baseball fans. Good. We, we, we absolutely agree. Uh, I think we can all learn a lot about how to approach our lives from that guy. I, I tell my friends about him he's been in china a lot and stuff okay. right? he was working in china yeah, yeah. 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 If, oh, yeah. if you get dropped into a, a culture you got to be good